Welcome to Indo-Pacific Affairs, a podcast devoted to tackling the wicked problems facing policymakers, academicians, military leaders, and others in the Indo-Pacific region. Affiliated with Air University's Journal of Indo-Pacific Affairs and the Air Command and Staff College's eSchool, the podcast features interviews with the top names in academia, government, and think tanks from around the region. Disclaimer. The views and opinions expressed or implied in this podcast are those of the participants and should not be construed as carrying the official sanction of the Department of Defense, Department of the Air Force, Air Education and Training Command, Air University, or other agencies or departments of the U.S. government or their international equivalents. This is the Indo-Pacific Affairs Podcast. Welcome to the Air University Journal of Indo-Pacific Affairs podcast. I am Captain Shaquille James, and I am here with my co-host, Lieutenant Colonel Z. Miller. Today, we have the pleasure of interviewing the Mitchell Institute's Daniel Rice. Dan graduated from the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies with an MA in International Relations after receiving his BA from the George Washington University and a graduate certificate from the Hopkins Nanjing Center. He spent years working and studying in China and is a regular contributor to the geopolitical risk analysis firm Foreign Brief, where he publishes weekly geopolitical briefs. Dan's primary areas of focus are intelligence, China, great power competition, geopolitics, and others. In addition, Dan has an HSK level six proficiency in the Chinese language and is currently a research analyst at the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, based in the Washington, D.C. area, where he also produces the Mitchell Institute's Aerospace Advantage podcast. Dan, it's a pleasure to have you. Hey, Shaq. Thanks for having me on. Very excited to be here. We'll start off with internal Chinese politics. So this year, we'll determine whether or not Xi Jinping continues to be the president of China or if someone else will take the reins. Can you talk about Xi's quest to remain president of China? Is he president for life? And how exactly does this process work? Sure. Thanks, Jack. Uh, So Xi Jinping certainly has taken steps to become president for life. And one of the first things that he really did was he used his anti-corruption campaigns to purge any political opposition out of the Chinese Communist Party. And he's also broken some precedents in terms of how the leadership would have actually transitioned from Xi Jinping to a new successor. So one of the first things he did on that front was during the 19th Party Congress, he did not have an apparent heir. And it's a very public event. The members of the standing committee normally take the stage. And there's normally somebody standing right next to the general secretary that would become the heir apparent to that position. So C did not have one of these heir apparents. And then he actually went on to do some other things legally in order to set up his ability to be president for life. So back in 2018, he actually changed the terms of the presidency such that there was no limit on the number of terms that one could hold the title of the president. And for some context here, there's really three positions that somebody needs to hold at the same time in order to be the paramount leader of China. And this was set as a precedent back by Deng Xiaoping in order to limit the power that somebody would have at the highest level of the party. And those, those three positions 
are the general secretary of the CCP, the chairman of the Central Military Commission, and the president of the country. So the general secretary and the chairman of the Central Military Commission, those two positions did not have term limits, but the president did have a two-term limit. By extension, that would mean that one person could only hold all three titles at the same time for two terms. So by removing those term limits, he is now able to hold all three titles for as long as possible. And at this point in time, the only real thing that might change that situation is if Xi Jinping does not continue to have the political support necessary to hold all of the titles or to be, quote-unquote, elected to all of those three offices. I see. And connecting to Xi Jinping a little bit more, his reign as China's president has been known for many things, and one of the more well-known policies of his presidency has been the anti-corruption campaign. Can you talk about this anti-corruption campaign and how it factors into his overall plans? Yeah, absolutely. So the anti-corruption campaign in China, it's, it's not new. Almost every general secretary has had to use an anti-corruption campaign to weed out some legitimate corruption concerns within China. Um, and a lot of that corruption stems from the notion of guanxi, which is relationships, and it's, it's a form of nepotism that spans society. So from, you know, your local mom-and-pop shop all the way up to the highest ranks of the CCP, uh, one of the binding characteristics of relationships is that you always look out for your friends and your family and you help them up. There's actually a saying that as the rooster rises to the roof, he brings his friends with them. And they really embody that in Chinese society. So the question that I think you're getting at with the anti-corruption campaign is more the political side of it. And that means how has Xi Jinping used it in order to solidify his position and consolidate power within the CCP? So each general secretary has had their own thoughts on how China should be run, despite what you might read in some of the literature that is put out by the CCP. And their thoughts are supported by followers within the party. Uh, a good example of this is that Xi Jinping himself is actually a mentee of Hu Jintao and supported a lot of the things that Hu Jintao uh, had in mind when he was ruling the country. So when Xi Jinping has been consolidating the party thought, what he's done is he's purged other leaders' supporters. And there are two really good examples of this. Um, the first, who you probably saw in the headlines, was uh, Bo Xilai, who was the former Minister of Commerce and a key political rival of Xi. And there was also the former Vice Chairman of the Central Military Commission, Su Taiho, who was also purged by Xi Jinping. And both of these guys were supporters of Jiang Zemin and Jiang Zemin thought. So as he's been purging folks that would have been supporting of other ways of ruling the country, he's really solidified his own thought leadership, and he actually wrote it into the party constitution, which is Xi Jinping thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era. And so now that he's consolidated a lot of the political thought on China, he'll be able to actually leverage that to help sustain himself as the paramount leader. 
And I saw this in some of the documents that they were sending around to some of the lower levels of the CCP in the elections leading up to this year's 20th Party Congress. In the documents, they said things like, you know, when you're making your vote, keep in mind that we should all be supporting Xi Jinping thought. So that political consolidation is really what this anti-corruption campaign is all about. Touching on that a little bit more, you mentioned controlling the narrative. Another thing that uh, Xi Jinping's presidency has been known for, particularly in the uh, international affairs area, is wolf warrior diplomacy. And can you explain exactly what that is and how exactly it serves the Chinese government's interests? Yeah, thanks for the question. Uh, so Wolf Warrior Diplomacy is named after the film Zhanlang, or Wolf Warrior. And what it really is, is a more aggressive take on conducting foreign policy and achieving Chinese interests abroad. And it's actually quite a radical shift from what China's done in the past. So during China's Gaige Kaifang, or opening up and reform, Deng Xiaoping, he had a, a principle called which was hiding and biding one's time. And that principle was primarily to reassure the rest of the world that as China's economy grew and as it built up its military to support its economic interests abroad, that they wouldn't be aggressive, uh, specifically militarily, towards other countries. And for a long time, that was the status quo of hiding and biting and not being aggressive. And then recently, we saw a shift towards this wolf warrior diplomacy where China has become much more aggressive in pursuing their interests abroad and really pushing international actors to accommodate China into the global liberal world order um, or, you know, even maybe a, a new world order in which China has a place as a global power. And this more aggressive policy has actually been the subject of debates amongst Chinese academics because there's one side of the argument that really thinks hiding and biding time is appropriate because otherwise China will have a lot of backlash. Um, you know, you can think of how the, the narrative of the U.S. is containing China, how that affects China. And then on the other side of the coin, people are saying that, you know, China, since it is now um, not just a near peer, but a peer, that it should be more aggressive in securing its interests abroad, which has actually started to get a decent amount of public support. And so we saw this actually play out, or this tactic of wolf warrior diplomacy play out in the Anchorage, Alaska meeting between Secretary of State Blinken, uh, Jake Sullivan, Yang Jiechir, and Wang Yi last year. And what we saw was that China and the U.S., when they came to the table, they had radically different views of the world and radically different views of what their objectives were, and they could not reconcile them. So that's kind of the tactic, is that China, when it does have these either bilateral or multilateral meetings, that they will aggressively put forward their visions and their objectives in the world and almost force people to accept it and to work with that vision, as opposed to before, where they might have been more accommodating to Western objectives and ideals. 
I think something worth noting as well is that in this transition from hiding and biding to aggressive foreign policy, there's some historical background. And that's that in the past few centuries, China has really felt like it's been humiliated by the West. Think of the opium wars. Think of Taiwan being taken over by Japan. Think of Japan invading China in World War II. All of these things have really painted a picture for the Chinese domestic audience that the West treats China unfairly. And so as China's gained in both economic and military might, there is a point in time when people start to realize, hey, you know, we've got the muscle. We need to flex it in order for us to actually make sure that we can continue on this path of development and, you know, in the Chinese mind, ultimately reach socialism in a modern era. I think in terms of how Wolf Warrior Diplomacy serves the CCP's interests, um, as we've seen in recent events, aggression abroad or a more aggressive stance towards the West has not really played out the way that more authoritarian countries have thought it would. Um, I think we've seen a very, very strong Western and unified response against things like Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And when China takes this aggressive stance towards Western countries in the future, I think we're going to see a pretty strong response and some really clear red lines being drawn on what China can and cannot do. And you've kind of alluded to it, and I want to transition to the conflict in Ukraine at the moment. Um, so as you know, Russian aggression in Ukraine has placed China in a very difficult spot internationally. How does the Communist Chinese Party view the war in Ukraine? Yeah, so it definitely has put China in a very difficult position. I mean, immediately before the invasion, we saw Russia and China meeting at the Beijing Olympics, and Xi and Putin, they put out a joint statement condemning NATO expansion and saying that their partnership knows no limits and that they were going to work together very closely on a wide range of global security issues. But what I think the war in Ukraine has shown is that that partnership may actually have some limits. So I think based on what I've seen, China is really trying to hedge the outcome of Russia's war with Ukraine. If Russia is successful, they've taken steps to support the narrative that Russia's put forward, the disinformation about the rationale for the war, how it's really a function of Russia trying to protect its own people in Ukraine, uh, all of the different false narratives that Russia has put out, they've supported. But at the same time, they have left some room for diplomacy. And what I mean by that is that China has put out statements that have said they could either be a mediator in the conflict or that the China-U.S. relationship, which is obviously put into question while they're supporting Russia, but that the U.S.-China relationship has a, a strong future and that there should be no conflict between the two because it's necessary for global stability. Um, so obviously, it's, it's a very tricky game that they're playing right now. You can't really say one thing and have your entire populace supporting a war in Ukraine uh, and making believe that the U.S. somehow instigated the war, etc. Um, so it leads to some really weird conversations 
when you're talking with people inside China, how they're viewing what's going on in the world. And uh, quite frankly, we've actually seen that uh, in a similar way with people that live in Ukraine calling their family back home in Russia and getting that false narrative out of their, their Russian family members. Uh, it, it almost feels like there's two different worlds right now. And that's very difficult to maintain, right? But fortunately for China, they've got a very, very strict lockdown on their internet, on social media, on even what people are allowed to say and what they're not allowed to say. And so they can really control that narrative. Now, as much as a narrative is effective, it also doesn't translate into real-world effects, right? So we have to look at what China has actually done in policy decisions during this war. And there's two things that stand out to me. The first one is that very shortly into the war, China and Russia signed a $117.5 billion oil and gas deal. And the second one is that they removed the limitation on Russian wheat exports to China. So what it appears to be is that China is using this difficult situation that Russia finds itself in, where it cannot actually occupy all of Ukraine and execute its full invasion, um, and squeezing all of the economic gain possible out of Russia to better China's own position. Uh, and that feeds back into China has a long-standing history of food security concerns and also of energy concerns. So in the long run, what it appears to be is that China is hedging its bets. It's trying to get itself in the best possible position that it can um, for its own strategic interests. And it's waiting to see how the war plays out before they really, really commit to one or the other angle. Um, all that being said, it is very, very discouraging to see how aggressively the Chinese domestic discourse has supported Russia's invasion of Ukraine and how the Chinese people have actually really embraced that false narrative and used it in a way to paint the West as some sort of enemy. Um, and in the future, that might have some serious repercussions. In the past, it certainly has. There have been situations in which a, a domestic narrative develops around uh, Japan, and then the people will actually go and they will attack Japanese factory workers. They'll flip over Japanese-made cars. Um, they'll boycott certain goods. I know, uh, I believe it was Chanel had an issue where they had a commercial that came out that was viewed as anti-Chinese, and then all of their products were boycotted. So while a strong domestic narrative that's anti-West is very dangerous in terms of drumming up the possibility of war, uh, it's also very dangerous for economic reasons and, quite frankly, for the safety and security of our own people that might be in China. With your background as both a China and aerospace analyst, can you talk about the People's Liberation Army Air Force's flight incursions into Taiwan's air defense zone? It seems that we are observing more of these provocative flight activities from the Chinese on a regular basis. What's the rationale behind this? What message is China hoping to send? either to Taiwan or allies in the region. Sure, and I've actually had the great pleasure of speaking with Ken Allen and Dr. Brendan Mulvaney, 
of the China Aerospace Studies Institute at Air University on this topic. So, it, you know, for your audience, if you want to hear those episodes of the Aerospace Advantage podcast, you can check out the links in today's show notes. Um, but on the topic, China is really achieving multiple effects by flying into Taiwan's ADIZ. Uh, so the first one is that they're getting training hours. It's not just for the pilots, it's also for the maintenance crews, it's for mission planning, it's for the pilots to fly in formation, etc. And that's really helpful because China has historically lacked a lot of those training hours, and they still don't have a full overseas capability. So the more training, the more it means that when it comes time to actually fight, that they'll be prepared to do so. The second thing that they're doing is that they're gathering intelligence on Taiwan. So most of the sorties that have occurred have happened in the southwestern quadrant of the Taiwan ADIZ. And if you look at a map, that's where most of the beaches are that could reasonably hold a landing fleet. And so by flying in that region, they're figuring out what type of capabilities Taiwan has on the island in that quadrant that could reasonably uh, target and track Chinese planes that are in the region. They're also figuring out what types of planes Taiwan has, right? Doing some bean counting. So what is Taiwan flying to intercept these sorties? Is it their imported aircraft? Is it their domestically produced aircraft? How many of the aircraft are they sending out to intercept each of these sorties? They're pretty much figuring out what Taiwan's mission-capable rate is for the jets that they've got. And the third thing that they're actually doing is they're waging a war of attrition, but not in the traditional sense. So by sending planes into Taiwan's ADIZ, what they've done is they've forced Taiwan to fly its own jets up to intercept the sorties. And that's putting hours on the planes. It's forcing Taiwanese pilots to maintain a period of time where they're on high alert. Uh, so there's some serious mental fatigue that goes into that. And we've actually seen this have real consequences. So back in March 2021, the Taiwanese Air Force stopped intercepting every sortie that China was making into their ADIZ. And that's because there were several fatal crashes of Taiwanese planes um, and there were maintenance issues. So how this plays out in the bigger picture here is that you have to remember that Taiwan only has about $25.6 billion in total defense spending to spend on a force that can stop a Chinese invasion. And in the past, Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen had supported buying big ticket platforms. So think the F-16Vs and think their diesel submarine program. And those cost a lot of money. So what it means by burning out Taiwanese jets and wearing out their pilots is that they're forcing Taiwan to make some very difficult decisions in what they can actually spend their money on. Do they have to buy more planes to replace those that are now burnt out? Or do they buy other things that might be more reasonable and more cost-effective when it comes to defending Taiwan and it also forces difficult political choices, too, because for Tsai Ing-wen, it's much easier to sell to the Taiwanese people that you're spending a lot of money to put jets on a ramp or to put submarines in the sea uh, because they're there. You can see them 
And if you think about traditional military capabilities, it looks a lot better to have hardware that you can point to and say, hey, we've got a modern military than it is to do something that actually might be more effective. Um, and what I'm talking about is there's the thousand needles concept where Taiwan, instead of buying these big ticket items, they would buy a large amount of portable missiles that they could use to actually sink an invasion fleet or to shoot down Chinese jets. And while that makes a lot more sense, it is a lot more difficult to sell that to the people who will end up actually paying for these capabilities. And so beyond China and Taiwan, what China is really doing is it's signaling that its air force and its navy can conduct these overseas operations over deep water, which is a different mission set um, than operations over land, and that they are being more aggressive in what they're able to actually accomplish. We'll now transition a little bit to the economic side of things. So in China, the legitimacy of the CCP is almost explicitly linked to economic success. In that sense, the financial woes of companies such as Evergrande and the slowdown of the Chinese economy in general causes some legitimacy issues for the CCP. Can you talk about how such economic issues affect the CCP's quest for legitimacy? Yeah, thanks, Shaq. Uh, and you're right. You know, the legitimacy of the CCP is pretty directly linked to the economic success of the country. And so definitely things like Evergrande and the slowdown that we've seen has affected their quest for complete legitimacy and control. Um, one of the interesting things here is that big tech companies also plays into this. And I think it actually all stems from uh, Deng Xiaoping when he implemented the opening up and reform. One of the key things that he repeatedly stated was that introducing capitalism into China was for the sole purpose of accelerating the Chinese economy so that they could reach socialism faster. And at the time, I don't know if he had a clear picture of how far capitalism would go in China. Um, and I think actually in the U.S. too, you know, we saw this, this rise of capitalism and we thought, oh, well, you know, with capitalism comes democracy. And so as the Chinese get more wealthy, then they're probably going to be more supportive of a democratic system as opposed to what we see now is the authoritarian system. But back to how it affects the CCP's power is that with these massive companies like the tech companies and like Evergrande, a lot of these things either have too much power or they're supported by industries that might not actually exist. Um, and so for Evergrande, it's a construction company. And as, as I'm sure people have seen in the news, there are legitimate whole ghost cities in China that are based off of property speculation. And these cities, they're built, and the idea was if you build it, they will come, and uh, you know nobody ever showed up. So there's uh, tons and tons and tons of money that is factored into GDP based on developing this land that is not being actualized by people renting or purchasing the property. And in the future, that's going to actually really impact the Chinese economy because if you take that out of the overall GDP growth, then they're looking at a, a lower top-line number than what they actually would want to see. And with big tech companies like Alibaba, and we saw that the CCP more or less black-bagged Jack Ma 
one of the things that we've seen there is that there was this notion of the 996 schedule, which is from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week. Um, in other words, uh, a lot of working hours that people were being put through. And the CCP actually said, you know what? Uh, we understand that we've said, okay, you know, use a capitalist model, to develop your businesses. But at some point in time, we need a balance of life for our people. And so they actually don't support the 996 model, even though it, you know, it was really, really working for these tech companies. So at the end of the day, all of this comes back to one of the fundamental promises that the CCP has for its civilians, which is continued economic growth. And if you've got companies like Evergrande that are being propped up by ghost industries, or if you've got these massive tech companies that are challenging the CCP's authority, um, or could reasonably challenge their authority based on their economic leverage, then the CCP will have to crack down on these companies. And we've actually seen the CCP say that small and medium-sized enterprises are the backbone of Chinese society. And so that, that will require a lot of top-down regulation from the government, uh, not only to support potentially failing businesses like Evergrande, but also to cap the growth or to really rein in those, those really high-growth companies that do have a lot of economic leverage in the country. Sort of touching on the economic aspect of that and also other aspects, as the Chinese economy, in addition to the military and global influence of China, continue to advance rapidly, there is the question of where exactly we are headed in this great power competition. What exactly does the ideal world look like from the CCP's perspective? And what is the Chinese government trying to achieve? Yeah, that's that's the million dollar question, right? Um, so everything that I will say is speculation because obviously uh, it's all in the future. Um, but it all comes down to what Xi Jinping wants and wants to try to achieve for China. And there's a little bit of history that we can actually go on to see what that might look like. As I mentioned earlier, you have to remember that China's past with the West uh, and with the international order has not really been all that positive. They've gone through periods where they felt unfairly treated, where they lost territory, um, where they were forced into economic exchanges that were not beneficial for them, and they really took that personally. And so a lot of what we've seen with the Chinese economic growth, their growing and modernized military, and the rise of their global influence has been to try and achieve China's place in the international order that is commensurate with what they have to offer. And this, this actually also goes back to, and I know it's been used and abused a million times, but... China in Chinese is Zhongguo, which is the middle country or the middle kingdom. And that goes back uh, thousands of years to an old model where China was the central kingdom and they had all sorts of vassal states that would pay them tribute because, you know, at that point in time, the Chinese society was so much more advanced than everywhere else. And they, they really want to get back to that, right? So what does that mean for us? Um, that means that the, the liberal international world order that the U.S. has really fought for and supported since the end of World War II, 
that means that they probably want to change that. They want to make it accommodate China and Chinese interests. And one of the key tenets of that is the idea of human rights, which is something that China, at least in their policy, does not always support. Um, so things like that, changing the order to adapt to China's influence, um, making the factors in the international system necessary for China to continue to achieve its economic goals and continue its rise uh, in what they've deemed as the, you know, the second hundred years of China's rise to socialism. Um, all of these things are what they want to see happen. So 50 or 100 years from now, I, I would guess that China would want to see it as one of the global leaders, as a model for other countries to replicate in order to achieve a similar level of success that China has had, and that they would once again reach that status of being one of the global centers of influence. In regards to the global order, we are now in year two of the COVID pandemic. How is the pandemic viewed in China? And my question is, how has it affected the CCP's plan um, for continued growth? It's definitely impeded the, the CCP's plans. So the beginning of the pandemic worked out really well for China because they went into lockdown very, very quickly. And they locked down provinces, cities, and down to even the blocks of the different neighborhoods. Um, you know, so much so that you had to order your food and get it delivered to your doorstep in order to have something to eat. Um, and that all reflected itself in really low reported numbers of illnesses, hospitalizations, and deaths. Um, you know, and there's a question of how that reporting works, uh, but the numbers were fairly low. And China really leaned hard into the idea that it was leading the effort to fight the pandemic. And it even manifested itself during the Chinese New Year's Gala, which is one of the most watched TV programs in the world. Almost everybody in mainland China watches it. And it's a really good idea of, you know, what type of messaging the CCP wants to get out to its people. Um, during the gala, one of the events actually focused on how the rest of the world was being hit so hard with the pandemic that it was like a war zone. Um, you know, people were dying right and left outside of China, but inside China, they'd done such a fantastic job of combating the disease that they were even getting ready to put together teams of doctors to go and help out those poor countries abroad that had such a hard time with it. Um, and, you know, a lot of people in China really supported that. And they truly believe that China is the leader in combating the pandemic. But as recent events suggest, there could be repercussions for the way that China approached handling the pandemic. So now China has gone back into a full-blown lockdown, you know, province, city, block, building level kind of lockdown. And I'm no expert on epidemics, but I would venture a guess that as difficult as it was in the U.S. to get people vaccinated, that the herd immunity that has come out from either people getting sick or being vaccinated has really helped us kind of kick the disease in the short term. And, you know, it, it's apparent when you go outside here in D.C. and there's no more mask mandate and people are walking around and they're attending the Cherry Blossom Festival, that it's not 100% business as normal, but we're almost back. Uh, and on the flip side, when you look at China and it's 
full-blown lockdown. So I think one of the big things that is really compromising their plans is that the CCP does tend to take top-down policy measures that they don't necessarily know how it will play out at the very bottom level. And, you know, I can use an anecdote here uh, to illustrate this point. So right now under China's zero COVID policy, if you end up contracting COVID, you get sent to a hospital and all of the treatment is paid for for you, the one that is sick. But it's not just you that gets put into quarantine. Your entire family and anybody that you've come in contact with will be put into a quarantine hotel. And the families are responsible for paying for that quarantine hotel. And that means that during the time that they're there, they're not able to go to school, they're not able to go to work, and they can't really contribute to society. And oh, by the way, they also still have to pay all of their mortgage payments on time while they're not making more money. That is a serious financial concern for people that are not very well off, uh, which is a substantial portion of the Chinese population. So these lockdowns actually go back to what you asked earlier in the podcast, which is the economic growth, right? If people are unable to go to work, they're unable to go to school, that means that they're not going to be contributing to that GDP growth and that economic growth. And they have also got their own bills that they have to worry about which means that there's going to be a larger economic stress on the lower class. So, so certainly, in the long run, these lockdowns are going to have an effect on that, and that will directly compromise C the CCP's plans. But in the short term, you have to remember that although low numbers of illnesses and hospitalizations and deaths looks really good, especially when it's the CCP promoting the fact that it, it has such a strong response to the pandemic, that at the end of the day, the people being most affected by these policies are the people that can least afford it. I think we only have time for one more question. So here's the last one. In the first decade, we've seen a major reduction in the freedoms available in China. This includes the censoring of the internet, the crackdowns in Hong Kong, and the disappearing of activists and also the imprisonment of Uyghurs. Why is China doing this, and can we expect a continuation of this trend? Yeah, you really laid down pretty much all of the sensitive topics um, that China's dealing with right now, right? And, and to be clear here, I personally do believe in a free internet. I do think that the heavy-handed crackdown in Hong Kong has been a tragedy, that the disappearing of activists and the imprisonment of Uyghurs is unacceptable, and it goes against human rights. But that being said, you know, as an analyst, it is my job to look at these issues and look at them objectively and read between the lines of what's going on and why it's going on. So, you know, putting on those China glasses for a minute, China itself, the CCP, is really afraid of losing power. And that's specifically important for the ethnic minorities or smaller interest groups that are in China. And this stems from a little bit of history and a little bit of the future. So China has had a very difficult time of integrating ethnic minorities into their top-down system, their central planning system. Um, you can think of Xizang, Tibet. You can think of Xinjiang. You can think of even going back in time to 
the Manchus, right, in the northeastern part of China, uh, who were actually the rulers of the Qing dynasty, there was always these ethnic divisions that fractured the country. And now in the modern state that is China, they're afraid that those fracture lines might reoccur or reappear because with the different interest groups and the different ethnicities, it fundamentally takes away from one unified identity. So the censorship of the internet has been used as a tool in order to create that unity of identity amongst the Chinese people. And this actually also spills over to Taiwan, right? A lot of the narrative that you see around Taiwan from the Chinese perspective is that the Taiwanese are Chinese. It's one China, one China, two systems, as they call it. And, and so they use this tactic of censorship to control the narrative and control the domestic worldview that best aligns with the Chinese Communist Party's goals. Uh, so long story short is that can we expect more of this continuing forward? Yes, absolutely. And one of the craziest things right now is that if you are reading and consuming a lot of Chinese media, uh, and then reading and consuming a lot of U.S. media or Western media, they're really two radically different worldviews. And, you know, this gets down to the facts of what's actually happening on the ground are different in both spheres. So that will likely continue forward. And it does cause a very dangerous situation wherein there's more chances for miscommunication between the two groups. Um and obviously, that's dangerous because when we're thinking about having real-world effects or real-world consequences, then if there's less communication between the two people, then there's more chances for misunderstandings. There's more chance for potentially escalatory comments between the two sides, and it could lead to real conflict. Unfortunately, it does look like this kind of situation will continue because it is in China's fundamental interest to have their population fully behind what the CCP's goals are. So they will continue to control that narrative. They will continue to crack down on freedoms specifically of interest groups or of ethnic minorities to try to align and unify everybody under that concept of one China. Dan, thank you very much for your insights. It has been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Lieutenant Colonel Miller. And thank you so much, Shaq, for having me on the podcast today. It was really quite a pleasure. And uh, thank you for all of the work that you and all of our airmen and guardians do for our nation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Indo-Pacific Affairs Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the interview. You can engage with our interviewees, authors, and others via our Twitter feed, at journal underscore Indo. You can also interact with us on the Journal of Indo-Pacific Affairs Facebook and LinkedIn sites.